Please sit comfortably, everyone. So we're all back on Zoom again. Somewhat familiar place we've been to before. Um, last uh, weekend for the Sarsenkai, I gave a Dharma talk which, um, through some technical glitch, didn't um, record. And um, some people um, asked me if I would um, give it again. So I'll give it again tonight. Um, there's, I can see online there's a number of people who um, who went there at the Zazenkai who are hearing it afresh. And those of you who've heard it be before, um, bear with me. <laughs> the name of the talk is Dogen, Mystical Realist. And as you all know, Dogen was the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, and we follow in, follow on from that lineage here in Australia. And it was written by He Jin Kim, who was a Buddhist scholar. What I said incorrectly last Sunday was that it was published in 2012. That was just another edition of it. It was actually published back in 1975. So it goes back a long way. But it was um, recognised as a very important book on understanding um, Dogen the Man and his work. Now to come to the title of it, Dogen, Mystical Realist, it seems like two opposites that we never come together really, which makes it an interesting title. And perhaps the reason why it seems like such a strange title that someone could be a mystical realist, if we look back into our own Western history and the narrative of Western history. Um, it was dominated for centuries and centuries by religion, by mystical ideas and um, angels and supernatural things, etc., that go along with religion. And then when the age of the, the Western age of enlightenment came in about the 17th, 18th century, it was the beginning of a very scientific, logical um, way of looking at the world and was cutting through all the superstition and so on. So that's why it was considered an age of enlightenment. But a lot of people critique the age of enlightenment in Western culture that it went so far in a kind of dualistic direction, you know, hard, cold, hard reality, being detached from reality, being detached from nature, having this kind of juiceless kind of scientific view of the world where there's no intimacy with the moment but a sort of a disengagement that's very logical. So it kind of went from one extreme to the other. So because we, we inherit that narrative, you know, of mysticism being associated with religion and realism with empiricism and science, it seems strange to put them together, but it's such a great title. And there are more narratives than just Western narratives of history. Um, but even in Buddhism, um, it sounds like that the Buddha became, and the life of the Buddha became idealised um, in centuries after his life into some kind of superhuman being. You know, and that enlightenment was something beyond human experience in a sense. Um, and the Chinese, who were a very down-to-earth culture, 
were the creators of Zen. It's where Zen flourished out of that, bringing Buddhism down to earth in this very realistic, basic uh, kind of way, and that's what we inherit. And in Japanese culture, um, people who understand Japanese culture far better than I do, say there's a very strong ethic in, in Japanese culture to be close to reality, to live your life close to the way things are, not the way you'd like them to be or they should be, but the way things are, and to make your decisions in life based on that. And if you make the poor decisions which are not based on reality, it's kind of considered, well, that, you're responsible for that. No one else is. And it seems to me, particularly in our Western culture today, where we live in this post-truth era, you know, and post-modernism, where um, there's no truth except perhaps your own truth, which is often based on what you feel to be true, you know, or what you want to be true, or a sort of narrative that you identify with, that in our life we could do with um, a real good dose of realism. I mean, just being with life as it is. That's what our Zen practices engages us to be with every moment of our life. Be with things the way they are, not the way you would like them to be or some story about it. So in one sense, Zen is very empirical. You know, it's not contrary to a scientific way of looking at the world where the first base is to observe what's really there. It's in that same spirit. And yet, the mystical side of it is not something supernatural. The mystical side of it is this sense of intimacy with life as it is. Intimacy with nature, the intimacy with joy, the intimacy with sorrow, the intimacy of relationships, of being fully human. So it brings that, that warmth and connection and closeness to life and connection to life. One of the things that's important to look at as a Zen practitioner is how we may distort reality. And Zen and Buddhism is not just the only model that has a take on how we distort our reality. From a Dharma point of view, we distort our reality through grasping onto things, avoiding things, being ignorant of the way things are. There are three ways that we do it. And in Western psychology, there are a number of different models that sort of clarify for us how we distort our reality as well. Freud's psychoanalysis was based on defence mechanisms, you know, denial, um, uh, hysteria, you know, um, projection. You know, denial, for example, just wanting to deny some part of reality you just don't want to see. Hmm? Or projection, projecting onto other people by idealising them or by demonising them. Examples in cognitive behaviour therapy, the most modern therapy today, or popular therapy today, I should say, is based on looking at how we distort our reality through cognitive distortions, um, through 
generalising from one particular instance. A dog bit me once, so all dogs are dangerous. Catastrophizing. Something small is happening and we exaggerate it into some huge catastrophe that's going to occur. Or personalising. You know, thinking that when something happens in life, it's always to do with me, where I'm being victimised in some way. There are all ways that we distort reality. So we can fall back on not just Dharma ways of identifying those things, but also modern psychology also helps us to, to assist us as to how we do that. And so it's very important in our lives that if, we, if our commitment as a practice is to be with what is really there right now, like, like holding up a, a mirror, a mirror is a really good metaphor for Zen practice. A mirror just simply reflects back what is there without distorting it. Mm-hmm. And neither does it judge it either. It just sees it for what it is. So the mirror is a good, a good metaphor to come back to in your everyday life, of reflecting what is truly there. And if our life is based on what is truly there, then we're more likely to make wise decisions in our life based on that. Um, and that's very important um, in our practice that we do that. Um, to come back to the theme of um, mystical realism, the, we talk about the facts of life you know, we, that's often referring to sex and, you know, um, so on. The Buddhist facts of life are the three marks of existence. You know, that one fact is that everything is permanent. Another fact is that everything is interconnected and nothing exists except that it's made up of other things which are non-self. Mm-hmm. They're two, they're the facts of life from a Dharma point of view. And if you live your life in accordance with those facts, well, then you won't suffer or you won't suffer as much. If you live your life out of accordance with those facts of life, then you will suffer and you will suffer more. So it's making yourself one with the fact of existence. To come back to the theme of mystical realism and to look at how it's expressed in song and in poetry. And first of all, um, I mentioned the other day a song, an Irish song that I'm learning at the moment, which is called Galway Bay. And it was written in about the 1930s. And at one point it was one of the three most popular songs in the world. And in that song, it starts off making mention of the beauty of watching the the moonrise over the bay and seeing the sun going down over the bay. You know, so these these events of nature that are occurring. And just to listen to the ripple of the trout stream, the women in the meadow making hay, to sit beside a turf fire in a cabin and watch the barefoot children as they play. These are the things of life themselves. 
And at the end of the song, there's a kind of a gentle, facetious humour comes into it where the writer says, and if someday there'll be a hit, uh, if, um, uh, and if someday there'll be a life hereafter, and somehow I know there's going to be, I'll ask my God to let me make my heaven in that dear old land across the Irish Sea. Making a heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. Not a heaven somewhere else, but a heaven on earth. What does it remind you of? The last words were recited in Hakuin tonight. This very place, this lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. So let me finish off by reciting to you some poetry which captures the spirit of this mystical realism. And the first one comes from Ikkyu, and the rest of them come from um, Ryokan. And this first one by Ikkyu is called A Meal, A Fresh Octopus. He says, describing the octopus, lots of arms, just like Canon, the goddess, sacrificed for me, garnished with lemon. I revere it so, a taste of the sea, just divine. Sorry, Buddha, this is another precept I just cannot keep. And the others from... Ryokan, and uh, if you listen to these poems, they express both the joy of being in this world as well as the sorrow of being in this world. Because to be fully human and to be intimate with life as it is, is to be in touch with both of those experiences that bring joy and bring sorrow. First one is called My Cracked Wooden Bowl. This treasure was discovered in a bamboo thicket. I washed the bowl in a spring and then mended it. After morning meditation, I take my gruel in it. At night, it serves me soup or rice. Cracked, worn, weather-beaten, and mishappen, but still of noble stock. How can I possibly sleep this moonlit evening? Come, my friends, let's sing and dance all night long. Stretched out, tipsy, under the vast sky, splendid dreams beneath the cherry blossoms, wild roses plucked from fields, full of croaking flocks, full of croaking frogs. Float them in your wine and enjoy every minute. And then shifting to his poems, which express sadness. And this first one, is called for children killed in a smallpox epidemic. And like last Sunday, before reciting this, I was asking everyone to reflect 
on the fact that where we are right now, around Sydney Harbour, is about 200 years ago with the first convict settlement around this area, is that um, a smallpox epidemic swept through the Aboriginal people who'd lived here for tens of thousands of years, and 90% of them died. So perhaps when we um, listen to this poem, um, we can reflect on that, as well as perhaps the people who've died from COVID right now. When spring arrives, from every tea, when spring arrives, from every tree tip, flowers will bloom. But those children who fell with last autumn's leaves will never return. I watch people in the world throw away their lives lusting after things, never able to satisfy their desires, falling into deeper despair and torturing themselves. Even if they get what they want, how long will they be able to enjoy it? For one heavenly pleasure, they suffer 10 torments of hell, binding themselves more firmly to the grindstone. Such people are like monkeys frantically grasping for the moon in the water and then falling into the whirlpool. How endlessly those caught up in the floating world suffer. Despite myself, I fret over them all night and cannot staunch my flow of tears. And lastly, the wind has settled, the blossoms have fallen, birds sing, the mountains grow dark. This is the wondrous power of the Dharma. Mystical realism. Thanks everyone. <laughs>